Good morning, church. It's good to see all of you here today. We are in a summer series that we're calling The Language of Prayer. Uh, We're looking at this amazing book in the center of the Bible uh, that God has given to us to teach us to pray. Um, This is one of the most remarkable books because it's not just God's word to us, it is also God's word for us, so that in all of the complex contexts and emotions of life, um, God is actually teaching us how to speak to him. So we've looked at a lot of different kinds of psalms this summer. We've looked at psalms of lament. We've looked at psalms of repentance. We've looked at psalms of praise. But today, uh, we are turning to look at what's called imprecatory psalms. Imprecatory psalms, imprecation, um, is cursing, calling down curses upon one's enemies. Um, imprecation. Um, there's actually 20 psalms like this, imprecatory psalms in, in the Bible. Um, and even ones that are not specifically categorized as imprecatory psalms, are full of enemies and threats. In fact, Eugene Peterson says the second character in the Psalms only to God are enemies. You know, you see them everywhere. And I think as Christians, especially when we read the Psalms, we just don't know what to do with them. Um, And so what we want to do is we want to look at these imprecatory Psalms today and see that they're actually doing something important for us. And we're going to do that by looking at Psalm 137, which many people call the scandal of the Psalter. And so let's pray, and you can thank God that uh, I'm preaching and not you, okay? Uh, So let's pray. Father, we thank you that every bit of the Word of God um, is given and inspired by you. There is no part, no matter how difficult um, it is, that does not speak your truth. And so we pray that you would fill us and fill me with the Holy Spirit so that we would not just hear your Word today, but be changed by it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 137. This is God's word. It is absolutely true, and it is given to each one of you in love. By the rivers of Babylon, we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. There on the poplars, we hung our harps, for there our captors asked us for songs. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said, sing us one of your songs of Zion. How can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? If I forget you, Jerusalem, may my right hand forget its skill. May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you, if I do not consider Jerusalem my highest joy. Remember, Lord, what the Edomites did on the day Jerusalem fell. Tear it down, they cried. Tear it down to its foundations. O daughter Babylon, doomed to destruction. Happy is the one who repays you according to what you have done to us. Happy is the one who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rocks. This this is the word of the Lord. My mentor, John Stott, was once officiating a service in his home church of All Souls in central London. Um, It was a communion Sunday, and so he was standing before the communion table just kind of like this, and he was about to kind of move into the liturgy of the table, and suddenly he looked up and there was a woman just kind of walking straight towards him down the aisle, and he thought she was just finding a seat, but she just kept on going, and she just walked right up the stairs. She walked right up to him, and she walked up to the table, and she grabbed the tablecloth like this, and with this curdling shriek, she just pulled the tablecloth. And up went the silver chalices. You know, up went the bread sailing through the air. Down went the wine, you know, pouring out, pouring down 
the stone steps. It was a harsh and ugly violation of a sacred space. And many times when I'm reading the Psalms and I come to a Psalm like this, it kind of feels like that. It feels like a harsh and ugly violation of the sacred. Psalm 139 that we looked at last week. We were, you know, you have these wonderful words, these beautiful, stirring words of the soul. You search me and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. So beautiful, so poetic. And then suddenly you come to the end of the Psalm, verse 22. I hate my enemies with a perfect, pure hatred. Okay, then. Mm -hmm. Or you're, you're reading in your morning Bible study, and you turn the page to Psalm 109. May my enemy's days be few. May his children be fatherless, his wife a widow. May his name be blotted out forever. How's that for your quiet time, right? <laughs> Awkward. <laughs> or even beloved Psalms like Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, you know, which are just so beloved in so many ways, but yet you come to right in the middle of the Psalm, verse 5, you set a table in the presence of my enemies, they're everywhere. The foes, the enemies, the rage, the hatred, the call for revenge. What is up with this? What is all this doing here? It feels like a ugly violation of the sacred. It feels like black spray paint sprayed across white marble. So what do we do with this stuff, right? Well, I'll tell you what Christians have tended to do with it. Um, we avoid them. Um, you know, many of the psalms that we've done this summer have been suggested by people in the congregation. I just want to be clear, no one suggested we, read, we do this psalm. In fact, if one of you had suggested that we preach on this psalm, I would have maybe directed you to therapy. Uh, so, so we avoid these psalms, uh, we neglect them, we explain them away as sort of primitive language, um, we, we don't know how to align them with Christian teaching about love and reconciliation, we edit them. Um, you know, notice in that amazingly gorgeous anthem that you all just did, that the, the writer did kind of edit out the part about the babies getting bashed there at the end. Um, so what do we do with this stuff? And yet we believe that all of scripture is inspired by God and God breathed and useful for correction and teaching. Does that include this? Does that include such, such vulgar and, and, and ugly language and curses of the enemies? Yes, it does actually. And what I want to talk to you about today is that psalms like this, the imprecatory psalms, actually help us to understand and to pray our anger, especially our anger and our indignation when we have been mistreated or when there is real injustice in the world. And that these, these psalms actually show us the right way to handle our anger, to handle your anger in a way that is actually righteous and life-giving and good. And God knows in a culture as angry as ours right now, we need this. So let's look at a few things that this psalm teaches us about anger. First, the necessity of anger. That we actually see that there is something about anger that is good. Uh, second, the wise treatment of anger. When you've got this kind of anger in your life, how do you do it? I mean, how do you handle it? How do you manage it? How do you treat it? And then third, the transfiguration of anger. How, especially on this side of the cross, this side of the gospel how the gospel really transforms and, and transfigures the, the place of anger in our lives. Okay, so first, let's look at the necessity of anger. For some context here, kids, this, is, this all takes place in the Babylonian exile, okay? Basically, in the Babylonian exile, a big bully country named Babylon came in and started picking on this little innocent nation called Israel. And what they did is they busted in and they besieged the capital of the nation, Jerusalem, and they just destroyed it. They pillaged, they burned, they raped, they stole, they killed. 
And they actually took the survivors in Jerusalem and they brought them back to Babylon as slaves. And this psalm is written by a slave. It's a slave song. And it's written, it's clearly by a musician who has been enslaved in Babylon. And he's recalling some very, very painful and horrific memories. Verse 2, he mentions hanging his harp up on a tree. I mean, they were so bereft that the music was just knocked out of them. They didn't even want to play anymore. Verse 3, it says their captors are taunting them, making fun of them. There's like, hey, hey, you there in chains. Sing us one of those, those great songs about how great your God is and how amazing your, your God will save you. Sing us one of those songs, mocking them. Verse 7, they remembering the neighboring nation of Edom saw the Babylonians attacking them, and Edomites literally came and almost like set up bleachers, pop popcorn, sat there cheering them on, tear it down, like a modern reality show, tear that thing down, let's see them go down, ha <laughs> ha. And then at the end of the psalm, one final detail that is really almost too terrible to name, but was a practice that was actually very common in the ancient world among pagan nations, is that the looting soldiers would invade a city, and they would look for mothers that were holding their infants in their arms, and they would take the babies and hold them by their legs, and they would bash them against the walls. And this man experienced this. He witnessed this. He was there and is seared in, in, in his memory. They were victims of a, of a horrific and violent injustice. And this is what I want to say about this, friends. See, we moderns are so shocked by the anger and the hate and the indignation that we encounter in these psalms. But I want you to know that this is emerging from the heart of people who have experienced truly horrific things. These psalms are so filled with rage at times because these are people who are grappling with reality. And the reality is, friends, that we live in a world that is cursed. A world that is ripped and torn and brutalized by the curse of sin. And these people are looking out in the world and they do not see a benevolent place where people have kindness in their hearts and are seeking to do good to each other. These people look out in a world and they see a world in which evil is real, in which enemies are vicious, in which the vulnerable are unprotected, and the holiness of God is violated every day. That's the world they see, a world of horrors and suffering and sorrow. And let me tell you this, friends, that this is the world that the majority of humanity has lived in for all of human history. And actually, this is the world that the majority of humanity on our planet live in today. It is only a precious, privileged few that can live as if the brutal world is not a reality every single day. And we are that precious, privileged few. And the anger of the psalmist, their anger is a sign that they are in touch with a reality that we, we need to know about. This is Gauri. Gauri lives in India. She was moved to uh, get a job to support her kids uh, and pay for medical bills. And so she took out a loan from a local factory worker, and it ended up being a trick. And so he increased the loan month by month. He violently forced her and her children to work long, long, inhumane hours in a local brick kiln. At one point, she tried to quit, and he sent his thugs to show up in front of her kids on the way home from school and beat them. And then he showed up on her doorstep and beat her with a log. She cried out and sought help from the police, but they were colluding with the factory worker. And this went on for over 10 years. Gowrie is one of 45 million people in the world today trapped in some kind of slavery, whether it be labor bondage or sex trafficking. A third of those people are children. 
45 million people. That's five times the population of New York City. Do you think that Gowrie might pray a prayer like Psalm 137? This is a picture of a school. It's not a school in the third world. This is a school in Richmond City. Many of the schools in Richmond City are struggling with hazardous conditions. In fact, on Monday, there was a hearing with the school board about about the George Mason School, George Mason Elementary School that's in my neighborhood. This is a school that about 500 kids attend every day. And we heard at that hearing about the hazardous conditions. Teachers at that school teach with masks on to prevent inhalation of noxious fumes. Ceiling tiles fall off and hit little children in the heads. Toilets overflow with sewage and rats walk the hallways. This is 8.6 miles from where we're sitting right now. Do you think that a parent whose child is zoned for that school and does not have the options for private education might pray a prayer like this? See, if you never find yourself angry, you never find yourself tempted, even tempted with resentment and indignation about just the raw oppression and and systemic injustice in the world. If you're never even tempted with hatred, it may be that you are out of touch with reality. It, It may be that you don't see that God's good creation is constantly under attack. The human beings made in the image of God are violated every day. The community every day is destroyed. Health every day is turned to injury. Life every day is turned to death. That horrible things are happening every single day. And God is angry about it. He is angry. He is grieves the ruination of his creation. And those who know this God will share his anger. The opposite of love, friends, is not anger. It's apathy. Apathy. Uncaring numbness about the brokenness of the world. And the imprecatory psalms knock us out of apathy. They show us that evil is real and that we're called to respond to it. Our culture is insane enough to allow us the opportunity to believe that this kind of evil and injustice doesn't actually exist. We can pretend it isn't there. We live in clean neighborhoods where we do not even tolerate trash and unmanicured yards. You know, we don't know any poor people. We don't have to know them. If we do see them, we feel no obligation to them. We have created a world in which we artfully hide away from the pain and tragedy of the world. And if we want to see it, we go on short-term field trips. Friends, these psalms teach us that we must take the God-forsakenness of the world seriously. We are not a people who hide away in some utopian myth and sponge paint over the pain of our city. We are Christians, and therefore we know that this world is exiled from God, and that people are being destroyed because of it, and that imprecatory psalms show us the necessity of that kind of anger. So that's the necessity of it. There's something important that your heart has to get in touch with to grieve the evil of the world, and these psalms help us to know that, okay? Second, though, What about the treatment of anger? If you actually are dealing with anger in your own life, either either over your own mistreatment as a victim or about the mistreatment of another, what do you do with it? We all know that anger, even if you're angry about a righteous cause, has the power to hurt you. You know, even when you feel hate about something that was actually a, a, a rightful offense against you, that hate can turn into something that's destructive. Like, like they said in the last of Mohicans, Magua's heart has so 
Magua's hate has so turned against him that he has become that which twisted him. That's what hate, that's what anger can do with you if you don't treat it properly. So what does this psalm show us about the right handling of anger? Well, look what this guy does with his anger. First of all, he owns his anger. We've seen a number of times in this series that the psalms are showing us a different way of handling our emotions than we are accustomed to. And if you were raised in a very conservative and religious environment, there's a good chance that you were either implicitly or explicitly instructed that good people don't get mad, right? If you're a Christian, if you're religious, if you're conservative, you know, good people don't get angry. Good people don't lose their temper. In fact, you remember Ned Flanders from uh, The Simpsons? Remember Ned? He's sort of a, a figure that kind of represents all of conservative religious America, right? And uh, Ned Flanders, at one point in one episode, he is so angry about something, but he just can't say that he's angry. In fact, he even goes to his church, to the empty sanctuary, to try to even talk to God about it, but he can't. He says this, oh God, I really want to yell, but I just can't dang diddly do dang diddly darn do it. That's what he says. He can't, Ned Flanders can't even bring himself to kind of name the rage in his own heart. Because good people don't get mad, right? Good people don't hate. Good people don't get angry. I think Ned Flanders needed to read some imprecatory psalms. Um, Here are these guys who are owning their hate. They're owning their anger, right? And this is ironically the only way that hate and anger won't destroy you. Because the Bible says if you don't own it and speak it um, and, and, and recognize it in yourself, it will, in the end, destroy you. Uh, Hebrews 12 says, beware lest a root of bitterness remain in you and later on spring up defiling you. So you're like managing your anger. You're not lashing out. You're, you know, you're acting like everything's fine. You're being polite, thinking that you've cut down the anger tree in your life when in reality the roots are still there and they're poison. And they will kill you. And so the psalmist doesn't suppress it. He owns it. He speaks it. He yells. He rants. He rages. Might you need to do this? Some of you do. Second, though, he praises anger. If the conservative approach to anger is to suppress it, the modern liberal approach to anger is to ventilate it, right? Just everybody's outraged these days about something. Just get on Twitter and start ranting, right? Just ventilate it. Get it out. You know, get all that junk that's inside of you. Just be you. Just let it all out. Ventilate it. Now, this guy is getting it out, but who is he ventilating to? Class, who is he ventilating to? His Twitter, his Twitter followers? No. God right? He is, he is speaking his rage to the Lord. He does not let his resentment keep him from God. He lets it drive him to God. I love the Psalms, and I've said this many times this summer. I love the Psalms because they are people praying to God as they actually are, not as what they should be. They are people praying to God, not all cleaned up pretty with bows, nicely presentable, but in all the grime and the muck of their souls, This is a man not putting on his best before God. This is a man coming to God with the white, hot heat of his rage and speaking it to the Lord who listens. So friends, we must pray as we actually are. And so what do you do with your rage and with your anger and your hatred? You don't stuff it. Don't repress it. But at the same time, don't just ventilate it indiscriminately. Pray it. Pray your anger. Pray your hate. Pray your rage. And you will find in the presence of God... Your heart will begin to change. And that really leads us to the third thing that we see him do. He entrusts his anger. Here's what I mean by that. Note what he does not say. He does not say, I swear before God, I'm going to pay those guys back. He does not say, God, give me the strength to take vengeance on my enemies. No, 
All of this is directed to God. He is entrusting his case to God, asking God ultimately to be the judge. Do you see that? Look at verse 7. He says, remember what the Edomites did. Remember is a legal term. Another way to translate that is take it to court. He is addressing God as the judge. He's imagining a courtroom. He's accumulating evidence against the Edomites, against the Babylonians. He is asking God to be the judge and to give him a right verdict for his case. And we see this again and again in the Psalms. Psalm 7, arise, Lord, lift up yourself against the fury of my enemies, for you have appointed a judgment. Psalm 10, that we read earlier, God, incline your ear to do justice for the oppressed so that man who is of the earth may terrify no more. Even Paul in the book of Romans, he says, do not take revenge for it is written, it is God's to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. What this means is that, yes, we do own our anger. We do speak our rage. We do pray our hatred. But in the end, we entrust our case into the only one who is able to see and discern the fullness of the human heart and the only one who can righteously judge. Miroslav Volf was a um, Croatian pastor during the horrible genocide of the 1980s and 90s, living in Sarajevo. He saw fathers killing children, neighbors killing neighbors. And he writes, he wrote later in this amazing book called Exclusion and Embrace. He said, you know, these days it is very passe and sort of a myth of the, of the liberal mind to kind of dismiss the idea of a God of judgment who will one day judge the earth. But he says, look, if you don't believe in a God of judgment, then you will always be tempted to take judgment into your own hands. He says, it is only a God of judgment that can limit your anger, help you put down your sword, and resist revenge, knowing, as we say in the creed, he will come again to judge the living and the dead. See, that is a hopeful confession to entrust your case in the hands of a God of judgment. That is a hopeful thing to say for those who are oppressed of the earth. So what we've seen, we've seen how the Psalms help us pray our anger. We own it, we pray it, we limit it, we entrust it. And so maybe you're thinking, wow, man, this Psalm isn't bad as I thought. Maybe I'll start praying this Psalm against my enemies. Well, friends, slow down for a second. Um, because even though, yes, indeed, this is God's scripture, this is edifying, we can learn important things about the importance of anger and how to handle your own anger. In the end, if you know Jesus Christ, you cannot in the end pray this Psalm about your enemies. Because we live in the light of the cross. We know something this psalmist did not know. We have experienced something this psalmist did not experience. We must read the psalm in the context of the whole Bible, in the context of the cross. And that's why we just have to touch here on the end on the transfiguration of anger. Paul Tripp says, this one, he has this wonderful talk where he says that the Bible is the story of two angers. Two angers. Okay? Just imagine this. Okay, on the one hand, you've got over here, you've got the, the s- selfish anger of man against God. Okay, that's one anger. And over here, you've got the righteous anger of God against man. You've got the, the selfish, sinful anger of man against God, rebelling against God, raging against God, abusing God's creation, violating the image of God and other human beings, rejecting God's rule. You see this. 
this sinful anger of God against man. And at the same time, especially throughout the Old Testament, you see the righteous anger of God against man. You see his wrath. You see his indignation. You see the the rightful condemnation that sin deserves, that God is angry about sin, and he's going to do something about it. And so you see throughout the Old Testament this mounting conflict, the sinful anger of man against God, the righteous anger of God against man. And you know it's going to crash. You know it's going to come together. What's going to happen? Is God going to wipe us all out like he did at the flood and finally take justice in his hands? What's going to happen? And then something absolutely inexplicable happens that no one could have ever predicted. The sinful anger of man against God and the righteous anger of God against man crash together and come down in a single event in the person of Jesus as he dies on the cross. That in that moment, Jesus the God-man receives in full, unfiltered force the sinful anger of man against God in his whipping, his inhumane torture, his unjust trial, his violating naked execution. He receives the full brunt of the sinful anger of man against God. And at the same time, we know that he receives the full righteous anger of God against man, that God takes the full ocean of the sin of humanity and all of his wrath against it, against all of the atrocities, all of the injustice, all of the horrors, too dark to name, and he takes his wrath against all of those things and he pours it out unfiltered upon his son, Jesus Christ. That is what the psalmist could not see. That is what the psalmist could not imagine. He could not imagine that one day that God's own son would be an infant in the arms of of his mother, and that infant would be taken up by his enemies and dashed on the rocks. There is no way that he could have imagined such a thing, but we know it. If you are a Christian, that's what you believe. And because of that, yes, you can rant and rage against enemies. Yes, you can vent your anger. Yes, you can pray for God's justice to be done. But in the end, because of Jesus, you also recognize that you are God's enemy. You recognize, as it says in Colossians, that we were, you were God's enemies, separated by your evil thoughts and actions, yet now he has reconciled you to himself through the death of Christ in his physical body. And because of that, you, on the one hand, are humbled because you know that it took God's own death of his son to reconcile you to the Father, and also that Jesus did not react against you despite all you've done to him, and therefore you can respond to your enemies, not with rage, but with love that you can learn to begin to forgive and become a minister of reconciliation in the way that God has reconciled you. So the cross transfigures our anger. It transforms it when we remember that we, the enemies of God, have become God's friend. But just as, as, as I wrap this up, let me just give some practical suggestions here. My hope is, is that because of this series, you will start praying the Psalms. What I do um, is I have this little book, it's a Psalter, it has just Psalms in it, and I just, uh, I just pick it up a couple times a day, and I just turn to whatever the next psalm is, and I just start praying through it. I put it in my own words. Now, what happens if you come to an imprecatory psalm? What happens if you come to Psalm 109 or you come to Psalm 137? How do you pray imprecatory psalms in light of what we've heard today? Let me just offer you a few practical suggestions. First of all, pray them for others. You might not be experiencing the kind of oppression and danger and enemies that the psalmist is articulating, but I guarantee you there are other people in our city and our world who are. So try praying this for other people. Try praying it for the 45 million people in our world today who are enslaved. 
Try praying it uh, for the refugee. Pray it for the unborn. Pray it for the black teen who cries out for justice in a system that feels rigged against him. Pray it for the, for the dispossessed, for the dehumanized, for those who suffer under unjust governments. You know, there is so much misplaced outrage in the Christian community today. Why not get in touch with the rage that God really feels? Why not get in touch with what really makes God's heart break? That's what the imprecatory psalms do. They drive you to feel the breaking heart of God and maybe would even drive you to get involved. I mean, maybe you want to get involved with an organization like International Justice Mission or World Vision, one of these organizations that seeks to work on behalf of the voiceless of the earth. So try praying these psalms for others. Second, pray them against the evil behind the evil. We know that we wage war not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and principalities in the dark places. And in the book of Revelation, Babylon becomes a symbol of the evil one, the malicious spiritual reality that seeks to undermine us all. And so it is right to hate. In fact, my daughters the other day said, Daddy, I know that you told us not to hate, but can we hate the devil? I said, yes, you can. You can hate the devil. And you can pray these prayers of imprecation um, against him. And, and remember this, though. Remember that the evil is not just like out there. It's also in here. As C.S. Lewis wrote in his book, the whore of Babylon has birthed demonic babies in my own heart. <laughs> can I say that in church? I think I can. I just did. Um, we see these small resentments, right? These tiny indulgences, these little bits of envy and jealousy that we excuse. These things are, these things are, are, are infants that will become grown adults of bitterness and evil in your soul. And if you want to know what Lewis really said about it, come ask me afterwards because I can't say it from the pulpit. <laughs> pray against the evil out there and in here. And finally, pray them in praise of Jesus. When you come to a psalm like this, begin to reflect on Jesus. Reflect on the ocean of atrocities, the ocean of injustice and the horrors of the sin of humanity, and the magnitude of the cost that Jesus endured to make the enemies of God friends. When you come to psalms like this, praise Jesus that he was dashed for us. Praise Jesus that because of his Work on the cross for us. You, his enemy, have become his friend. Praise Jesus. Praise him. Let's pray. We thank you, Father, that you have a heart that is a heart of love and that your anger is not unrighteous anger. It is anger that is fueled by love for the creation and for the people that you love. So much of our anger is unrighteous and selfish anger, but so much of your anger, your, all of your anger is pure love moving out to protect the earth and the humanity that you have created. Help us uh, to learn to pray through these psalms that we would get in touch with the anger of God, um, that we would remember that we um, have anger in our own hearts that we're called to steward wisely, and that in the end, we would remember that we, the enemies of God, have become your friends, and we would be ministers of peace and reconciliation. We pray this in Jesus' name.